You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Hey, how many of you in here have ever heard of a spite house? Raise your hand. Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. Um, The origin of the spite house is basically this. There was a man who lived in Seattle who had a piece of land between two houses that he loved. The problem is this piece of land was only six feet wide, so there really wasn't much he can do with it. And so one day he went to his neighbor and he said, hey neighbor, um, I'm going to make you the deal of a lifetime. If you want to expand your footprint, if you want to have a little bit of a backyard, I'm going to sell you my six foot piece of land. And the uh, neighbor said, well, I appreciate that, but the price you just offered me, I would only give you about a tenth of what you're asking for, for that piece of land. Well, the owner was so offended by this. He said, you know what? Forget you. I'm going to go to the other neighbor. So he goes to the other neighbor and says, hey, I want to make you the deal of a lifetime. I'm going to give you this piece of land here. That way you can have, you know, extra space for your kids to run around and all that. And the other neighbor said, hey, well, I know what the other guy said, and my offer is not any higher than his. I will give you a tenth of what you're asking for, but no more. The man then was so offended in his spirit that the owner went to a lawyer He found out what he could legally build on that land, and he developed a house that was five feet wide that sits between two other properties. And I think we have a picture of it that we can put on the screen. Yeah, there it is right there. And then out of spite, he moved into that house and lived there until he died. Now, this is a true story, and this isn't a one-time event. Um, Let's go to the next slide. We have the next picture. Okay. So this is a spite house in Boston. And as the story goes here, basically what happened is there were two brothers who were fighting over an inheritance. The brother who won out built the, the brick home that you see kind of on the right side of that picture. And one of the things the brother loved about that house is there was an alleyway between him and the other red brick house. And the light came in perfectly to where it would stream into his house at a certain time of the day. And he just loved it. Well, the brother who lost the inheritance was so bitter, he knew about this. When the alleyway became available, he bought the alleyway and built a house for the whole intention of literally blocking out light from entering into his brother's life. And then out of spite, moved into the house and lived there. Uh, I'll do one more. This is probably the most famous one in America. Um, a husband in a divorce settlement was required to build a house for his wife that was the exact replica of the house they lived in together. However, because in the paperwork there were no stipulations of where the house would be built, the husband decided to build an exact replica of the house, except in the middle of nowhere in a salt marsh where there was no fresh water running to it. Now, there are more examples I can share. Go Google this. They're all over the world. But the whole reason I share that is because what I want you to understand today is this. If you allow bitterness to settle into your heart, your life will become like a spite house. Uh, in that, you will be forced to live in a restricted space that you are constructing in your own heart that will actually keep you from experiencing the life and freedom that God created you to experience. 
And we see examples of this all over the scripture. Uh, for example, in Ephesians 4, we read that whenever there's bitterness in our life, it cuts off our intimacy with God. In Mark 11, we see it hinders our prayers. In Hebrews 12, verse 15, we see it pollutes our lives and contaminates the lives of those around us. And then finally, we see in Ephesians 4 that when bitterness and resentment come in our heart, literally, it gives the devil a foothold. Think about that. The devil who Jesus said has come to kill, steal, and destroy. When you remain bitter towards the person who hurts you or sinned against you, it literally allows the enemy to get a position in your life and your family where he can wreak all kinds of havoc on you. Therefore, in light of that, this topic of forgiveness is a really big deal. And one of the reasons we launched this series is because we believe that if you are going to have a healthy, vibrant, joy-filled existence then we must be a people who are by nature a forgiving people. And a lot of that, the question I want to try to answer this morning is how do we actually do this? Like on a practical level, how do we actually go from constructing a spot house in our heart to experiencing the freedom that comes from forgiveness? Well, if you were with us last week, just to redefine for you what forgiveness is, we talked about that forgiveness, when we got this definition from Gary Bashirs, he says this, forgiveness is the personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my, from my personal right to collect on the payment of his or her offense and myself from bitterness and resentment. If we could just kind of break that down, what we said last week is um, what forgiveness is, is one, it is making a decision to release the person from the debt they have accrued against you. It is making a decision that rather than making someone pay for their sins that they committed against you, you instead absorb the right to collect on that payment, and then you hand it over to a God who always does what is good, right, and perfect. That's the first part of the definition. The second part of that definition is when you forgive somebody, and this is the really hard part, not only do you release them, but you choose to love them. So you don't just say like, yeah, I've wiped my hands clean, I've forgiven you, I'm done with you. But you actually come to a place in your life where rather than secretly celebrating their failures or wanting to see them punished or whatever else, you want to love them. You want to see the same grace and mercy you have received to be extended to them. And that's what we said forgiveness is last week. But the question again this morning is, okay, how exactly do we do this? When you have been hurt and you have been sinned against the way that you have, how do you actually move from a place of bitterness to forgiveness on a real practical level? And I'm going to answer that for us in just a moment. But before we do, I want to look back in Luke 23 because I think there's, there's something in here that we need to hear that will help us get to the place of truly forgiving those who have sinned against us. So if you look back in Luke 23, just to set the context for you, Jesus has been handed over by the Roman government to be crucified. And what I want you to notice in our text is this. There are multiple groups of people who are playing a role in this scene. And the first group of people that we see in Luke 23 is what I will call the fickle crowd. The fickle crowd. If you look in verse 35, it says, As Jesus was being crucified, the people stood watching. Now, who are the people who stood watching? Well, it's the people that just a couple days earlier actually laid down palm leaves and praised Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. It's the same people who were singing Hosanna, right? And you are our king. You are the one who we believe is bringing salvation. That is the people who now stand at the cross, except now, rather than praising God, right, because the religious leaders have turned them against Jesus, they're actually denouncing him. They are condemning him. 
So you have the fickle crowd. Secondly, the next group of people you see are the religious leaders. It says in verse 35, the rulers, and that's the religious leaders of the day, the people who are supposed to be taking the nation back for God. It says the rulers sneered at him. That word sneer literally means to turn up one's nose. It means to look at Jesus with disdain in your heart. These are people who would have followed the Old Testament teachings that said that anyone that is hanging on a tree is cursed by God. So they would have looked and said, well, if this guy is on a tree, right, then clearly he's cursed by God. And here's the irony. He was cursed by God. But he was cursed by God on their behalf and on our behalf so that rather than us receiving the curse that we deserve for our sin, we can receive the blessing. And yet rather than the religious leaders bowing down to Jesus in gratitude and praise, they lifted up their noses at him. The third group we see is the soldiers who mocked him. If you look at verse 36, it says the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered Jesus wine vinegar and said, if you really are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. If you know anything about the crucifixion, you know the Roman soldiers literally made the crucifixion a comedy. They paraded the Son of God through the streets they whipped him, they spit on him, they threw a robe on him to, to, to further just say, oh, you're a king, let's put a robe on you. And they put the crown of thorns, and then they, they nailed him to a cross and put him between two thieves. And while he stood on the cross, dying, they gambled for his clothes, robbing him of any of his last dignity that he had. And they did all of this for the purpose of mocking the sinless Savior for what they saw as his failed efforts to be king. So feel the weight of that. Like This is the scene. And by the way, notice in Luke 23, who's not in the picture? His disciples. Many of the disciples who had just turned their backs on him, that, that ran from Jesus out of fear whenever Jesus needed them the most. So the only people really that we see here in this text that Jesus is surrounded by uh, is a crowd that has turned their backs on him. Religious leaders who have opposed him and soldiers who are now crucifying him. So this is an incredible moment in history where the God of all creation is being rejected and crucified by his own creation. And how's he going to respond? Well, again, if you look with me in verse 34, Jesus, while nailed to the cross, pray the following, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That word for forgive in the Greek is in the aorist tense, which, by the way, means this was not a one-time prayer. Um, rather, as Jesus was being slandered and mocked and ridiculed, he was repeatedly praying not that God would pour his wrath out on his enemies, but that he would pour out his mercy on his enemies. This is incredible to me. And this is just Jesus practicing what he preaches. Don't we hate whenever people don't practice what they preach? And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's literally what Jesus is doing right here. He's putting his money where his mouth is. As his actual enemies are killing him, he's praying for them. And in this prayer, you have to get this. There is something absolutely extraordinary that I pray will settle into your heart this morning that we have to get if we are ever going to be by nature forgiving people. And it is this reality. Please hear this today. Feel this. If religious leaders can be forgiven for belittling the very one they're supposed to be pointing people towards, you can be forgiven of your sins. If, if soldiers 
who were crucifying the Son of God and mocking him can be forgiven of their sins, then you can be forgiven of your sins. If abandoning disciples can turn away from Jesus and a fickle crowd can turn their backs on him, if they can be forgiven, then no matter who you are or what you've done or where you have come from, you can find peace with God today despite your sins. In other words, what I want you to understand this morning is, listen, there is nothing you have done that God cannot forgive. And therefore, my hope is that this morning is that you will again take your sins to Jesus, no matter how gross they are, how shameful they are, how disgusting they are, and you will trust that when you do, that God's grace is always sufficient for you. That's what we're reminded of right here. Guys, listen, Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches something like this. In Hinduism, what goes around comes around. In Buddhism, there's nothing of a personal forgiving God. And even in Islam, there's a concept of forgiveness but forgiveness is something you have to earn, right? When you sin, you have to make things right before God. But in Christianity, it's totally different because in Christianity, what we have is Jesus extending forgiveness to the least likely people who deserve it, none whatsoever. That's what we have. This is why Marshall Hoffman says the following, the door of the kingdom of God swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. Because that is true, because forgiveness really is a central theme to our faith and message, Christ's plea, therefore, to his disciples today is that we would be a people who practice forgiveness. That we would be known as a people who are by nature a forgiving people, quick to release, quick to love those who have hurt and sinned against us. And a lot of that now this morning, the question is, okay, now how do we do this? On a very practical level, how do we move from holding on to bitterness and secretly celebrating the, the sins of others and wanting to see them punished and building up a spite house on our own heart to actually extending forgiveness? And I want to get super practical with you this morning, okay? Um, I'm a super practical, super ground level type stuff. And so basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you in the next few moments some material that I've come across from Dr. Everett uh, Worthington who is actually a psychologist and a Christian who gave his life to wanting help to help other people achieve uh, a life of forgiveness. Um, and, and so I would encourage you to listen up. If you've ever been hurt or sinned against, uh, you should listen. Okay, this is really good stuff. This is from after 30 years of clinical and scientific work studying thousands of different people. What Worthington did is he came up with five steps to moving us from bitterness to resentment. He sums up these five steps by using the acronym REACH. Okay, and I'm going to put this on the screen for you. I'm just going to walk through reach one letter at a time. And so the first step, he says, if you want to move from bitterness to forgiveness, is you have to recall the hurt. There's the R. You have to recall the hurt. In the words of Lewis Smedes, only realists can be forgivers. Or put another way, when it comes to forgiving others, as much as we just want to sweep the painful memory under the rug or pretend like nothing ever happened and just kind of move on, if we want to forgive our perpetrator, we have to learn to look the evil that was done to us in the eyes and call it what it is. We have to look at the painful memory and we have to actually take a moment to recall the negative emotions and thoughts that are tied to that event. Because as the old saying goes, right, if you cannot feel you cannot heal. And therefore, the first step in forgiveness is, I would say this, this week, this is super practical. Get alone with God and ask him through his spirit to reveal to you a wound or wounds that you may have in your life that you still have not healed from. 
And the first thing you have to do is if you want to heal from that is you have to actually stop trying to minimize what happened to you and feel the full weight of it. To feel it. And then I would encourage you, if you're a journaler, begin to write out your thoughts. Try to, try to jog some of these things down. And then as Ryan was talking about earlier, because community and DNA is so important, process this through DNA. Get along with some brothers or sisters and share what's truly going on in your heart. And I want to say this. If you begin to practice this this week and your mind runs out of control... Right? If your thoughts and feelings begin to control you, if it's that deep in extreme cases, sometimes you need to get with your DNA and set up an appointment to meet with Adam. Or you might need to schedule time with a therapist. I mean, this is some deep-rooted stuff that will begin to crop up if you truly allow the Spirit to reveal those things to you. But this is the first step. It's recalling the hurt. Secondly, we're moving on to the E. The next thing to do is to move from bitterness to forgiveness is you have to empathize. Now, this is hard because this is where you're actually going to put yourself in the place of your perpetrator. This is where rather than demonizing the person for what they have done to you, you try to understand how if you were in their place, if you had grown up the way they had and you had the family they had and, 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 and you would have received the wounds they received and because you had the same thing in you that they have in, you, and they have in themselves, which is sin, this is where you try to understand, I know this is hard, how if we would have been where they are, how we might have done the exact same thing that they have done. And I know, like, that, that, that sounds very difficult, and it is. And I think probably one of the easiest ways to do this is by practicing what psychologist Les Greenberg calls the empty chair technique. Okay? And here's basically what the empty chair technique is. I'm going to use um, this chair. Hopefully you can see this. Um, the empty chair technique is basically this. If you're struggling to forgive someone who has hurt you, one of the best things that I know of that you can do is is you actually pretend like the person who hurt you is sitting here in this chair. Okay, you do this in your house, in office, wherever. And you in your heart, or if you want to now say it out loud, you do it out loud, you say to them everything you wish you could say to them. Okay? And then here's what you do. You literally, after you do that, you sit here, and you actually put yourself in the place of your perpetrator. And assuming they just heard everything that you said to them, you take time to actually say back to them what you think the perpetrator would say. If they actually had some self-awareness and they really received that, knew what was going on, they begin to now share with you, hey, here's a little bit of my story, here's why I did what I did. And then after that, you then at that point now say to the perpetrator what you think you would say after hearing what they shared. This is something we do in counseling here at our church. I did this actually a few weeks ago with a woman who was struggling with bitterness and resentment against somebody else. And I said, okay, what would you like to say to her? And so she said everything. She just kind of unloaded and told this lady what she would like for her to hear. And then I said, okay, now, if she was here and she just heard that, if she was just being honest and telling you kind of from her heart why she did what she did, what do you think she would say? And she said, oh, I know she would say, look, I grew up in a highly performance-driven family where I was constantly having pressure put on me to perform and, and to be better than the next person. A lot of my worth was measured by whether I was better than that person or this person. So now, still to this day, there's something in me that I feel like I've got to be better than you or I've got to perform or I've got to achieve this. And, and, and whenever I don't, I plummet into this just really dark place where I have to wear a mask, I have to pretend I'm somebody I'm not, and then I end up hurting and I abuse other people. And she kind of went through this whole thing. And I said, okay, well, well now, like, what would you say to her if she said that to you? And she'd say, oh, I'd say, I totally understand. I'd say, I grew up in the exact same kind of home. 
I grew up in a home where my parents are constantly putting the same kind of pressure on me, and I know how bad that feels to feel that lonely and like you always have to try to achieve and you always have to be better than you are. And, and I would tell her that, that I forgive her, that I get it, and if she needs help processing that, I'd be happy to like work with her through that. Now, this woman had battled bitterness for a long time. And by going through this, it was a really beautiful moment because through this process of empathy, she was able to forgive her, and not just there in my office, but eventually to her face. And listen, I know that this, again, is not easy, especially if you're anything like me. Um, Because here's what happens. When someone hurts me, I typically want to see them as all evil. Do you know what I'm saying? And and I want to see myself as totally innocent. I I was thinking about this past week on Friday. I was driving home from from Jonesboro. And I get a call from Jason Wolfenbarger. And Jason is a member in our church. He's one of our missional community leaders, works for the sheriff's department. And he called me and he said, hey, pastor, just letting you know that uh, you just came across the police scanner for texting and driving. And uh, he said, apparently someone saw you texting and, and called you in. Now, I wish I could say my first thought was like, hey, praise the Lord, man. I'm glad someone's concerned about my safety out there. But I actually just thought like, what kind of person does that? Like, like. What do they look like? I just want to know. And, and so here's what happened. For the next uh, probably 10 minutes on my drive home to my office to minister to people, uh, <laughs> as other people were driving by, I was looking at them and being like, does that look like the kind of person that would do that? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I, I was building up this really evil, distorted image in my mind. And here's the crazy thing. I was guilty. What I did was wrong. And yet here I am trying to turn my offender into an absolute monster while making myself out to be squeaky clean, right? So this isn't easy. And and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he knows this. That's why he says in one of his famous quotes, we need to realize, and he's talking about this in the concept of forgiveness. He says, there is some good in the worst of us, and there's some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, then, he says, we will be less prone to hate our enemies. In other words, what he's saying is if you want to forgive the people, you have to practice empathy. You have to put yourself in the place of the perpetrator, and you have to be honest about the fact that the same evil that lies in them also lies in you because you are a sinner. And you're to do this not for the purpose of ever excusing their sin. Please, this is not for the purpose of excusing their sin, but simply for the purpose of empathizing with the sinner. Next, we see is the A in the REACH acronym, and what he uh What Worthington goes on to say say is because empathy alone is not enough, you then need to offer what he calls the altruistic, there's the A word, the altruistic gift of forgiveness. The heart of the gospel is an undeserved forgiveness. You ever thought about that? That's the heart of the gospel. We receive a forgiveness that we did not earn. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. He says it's by grace alone that we have been forgiven. It is not of works. It is not something we have deserved, but it is the free gift of God. And you see, now, because God always, what God does in you, he always wants to do through you. When we are hurt, not if you are hurt, but when we are hurt, please hear this, guys. As disciples of Jesus, it is now our call to extend forgiveness. Please hear this. Not because they earned it. Not because they earned it. It's not forgiveness if they earned it. They they, they, they paid their dues at that point. The altruistic gift is when we extend forgiveness, we forgive not because they earn or deserve, but simply because forgiveness is by nature an undeserving gift, not a deserving gift. So that's the A. And then 
from this point, it says, if you really want to move from bitterness to forgiveness, this is the C word, you have to commit publicly to forgive. You have to commit publicly to forgive. If you remember from last week, uh, we talked about after Charles Roberts entered into a one-room Amish school and proceeded to shoot and kill 10 Amish girls between the ages of 6 and 13. Do you remember what the parents did? Within hours, they held a press conference and publicly forgave the school shooter of killing their daughters. It's, that's insane. That's, that's scandalous. Uh, and, and so that's why reporters begin to flock all over and try to cover this story. And there's an article that came out. Actually, it was a whole book that was written on this later called Amish Grace. And sociologists, I don't know if they were Christians, were trying to figure out how in the world is that possible? And they basically came to this conclusion. They said the reason that the Amish were able to forgive publicly is because at the center of their faith, they believed as a God who publicly extended forgiveness to his murderers. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And because this is something that is powerful and Christ-like, because public decoration is so important in this step from bitterness to forgiveness, Worthington says we have to do the same thing. Now, this does not necessarily mean, please hear this, it does not always mean that you have to go to that person personally and say, I forgive you. Sometimes that's not helpful because sometimes they don't believe they sinned against you. And they don't care what you say. I don't need you to forgive me. I didn't do anything to you. So sometimes that's, that's, that's not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. Okay, and That's where you need wisdom from your DNA and pastors and things like that to help you process that. But you can still publicly forgive. And a couple of the examples he gives in his materials, he says one thing you can do is you can make a certificate of forgiveness. And you can literally put on there, like, I, Jared Pickney, am choosing to forgive so-and-so on this day. You then sign it, and you share it with others. So other people can be there with you to say, like, yes, I see it. This is a, a, we are, we're, this is a monumental moment. You have forgiven that person. It's a public event. Another thing he recommends doing is writing the name of the person who sinned against you on your hand, getting with a group of your frangels in your DNA, and then actually washing it off. And he says, sometimes people will come to him and say, but it didn't come off the first time. And he's like, yeah, that's the way forgiveness works. Sometimes it takes many washings to get it off. And that kind of moves us to that last point. To where we would say this, because forgiveness sometimes does require multiple washings, because it is not just a one and done event, if you want to move from bitterness to forgiveness, you have to hold fast. You have to hold on to forgiveness. Have you ever forgiven someone, like seriously forgiven someone, and then all of a sudden all that negative stuff like resurfaced in your life later on? Um, maybe you're driving down the road and you hear that love song that's between you and her or you and him, right? Or you see your perpetrator in the store, right? And all these negative thoughts and emotions crop up all over again. What's that all about? Well, it's about the reality that forgiveness is often a process, especially if you have been hurt as deeply as some of you have. This is why Lewis Smead says again, forgiving really is a process, sometimes a long one, especially when it comes to wounds gouged deep. And we must expect some lapses. Some people seem to manage, finish off forgiving in one swoop of the heart, but when they do, you can bet that they're forgiving flesh wounds. Deeper cuts take more time than, and often use a second coat. You know, the reality is the closer a person is to you, the deeper they can wound you. Did you know that? And therefore, if you've been hurt by a friend or a family member or a parent or a trusted leader, forgiveness will sometimes feel like an archaeological dig. And what I mean by that is there are times where you'll feel like you are completely over the pain 
But then something will happen and those negative thoughts and emotions will crop up again. And in that moment, please listen, what God wants to do is in his grace, he's wanting to now invite you to go a little bit deeper. He's wanting to pull back one more layer and show you a place that you have still not completely surrendered over to him for healing. And though this is always painful compared to the pain of living with bitterness and resentment in your heart, it really actually doesn't compare at all. And therefore, in light of that, we are going to, again this week, practice the art of forgiveness. We're going to try to move from just being hearers of the word to doers of the word. And so this week, uh, your practice, which actually you can get, um, if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone, all of our sermon notes are there. The practices are on there. You can go and you can download that or just save that to your phone and you can have access to it. But the practice this week, and I think we can put it on the screen. If not, um, again, it's on your phone, is first this week. I want to encourage you to, again, reflect on the forgiveness you've received from God and others. Please don't let this become old news. The Bible is clear on our best days we deserve hell. You didn't deserve your forgiveness. I didn't didn't deserve my forgiveness. God has extended to us a free gift. And we need to, again, reflect on that. I would encourage you also, uh, the truth is, you are not an innocent person in here who has only been sinned against. You've sinned against others. And therefore, there are people who have forgiven you. Take time to reflect on that and how good that felt for them not to just hold that over you, but to forgive you. And then extend gratitude. You cannot be grateful and resentful at the same time. It can't. They don't. They, they can't coincide. And so, take time to give gratitude to God, to praise Him for His forgiveness and others. And then this week, the the third part, the thing we're adding to our practice is to actually reach. And this is going to be difficult. But it'll take several days. But recall the hurt, to empathize, to be willing to give an altruistic gift, an undeserved gift of forgiveness, commit publicly, and then hold fast. Um, this is going to be hard and costly work. But what I've been reminded of this week is that radical forgiveness in the midst of evil is what transforms the world. And if you ever doubt that, look again to the cross. Where Jesus, in the face of evil, rather than coming down off the cross, which he easily could have after all the taunts, in love he remained on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And it's because of that forgiveness that now you and I, rather than getting the hell we deserve, can be forgiven and freed. We can experience the salvation and the satisfaction that we are longing for. All that being said, there are some of you right now who are deeply hurt. You don't even know how hurt you are. And because you've had no idea how to process your pain, your wounds have never healed. And in many ways, there are some of us in here that honestly... And I say this with love in my heart because in some ways this is where I am. You're, you're a 55-year-old man acting like a 5-year-old in your relationships because you've never evolved beyond where that woundedness occurred. And I don't say that to shame you or guilt you. I'm just saying it's a reality, and this is a safe place for wounded people, which we all are. Nobody in this room can grow up and not be wounded. You, you just can't because we all grow up in imperfect homes. I had great parents. They wounded me. Uh, one of the most humbling things in the world is to know that despite my best attempts to be the best parent I can be, I'm going to wound my kids. I'm just, it's just going to happen because I'm an imperfect human being. And if you're here and you're like, well, man, how do I know if I have wounds that I have not been healed from? Well, I would just say this. Wounds still hurt. You ever been around a wounded person who hasn't healed? It's like you've got to walk on eggshells around them. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like, like I mean, it, it's like their claws come out over just the simplest things. And you're like, geez, or they, or they become passive aggressive. Like, no, I'm not mad. Mm-mm, I'm not mad at all. And you're like, what did I do? It's right. You got these million dollar responses to little nickel situations. That's a really wounded person. Wounds still hurt. You push on them. You get a reaction. So wounds still hurt, but scars are different, right? We all have scars. And, and you know, if you have a scar, scars don't hurt. Scars tell a story. They tell, and it's a beautiful thing. Scars are beautiful because they're wounds that have healed. And they tell a story of healing and restoration. I think about this scar, you can't see it. I thought about showing a picture of whenever I actually had the cut, but Megan said it was disgusting and gross, so not to do it. But I, uh, when I was laying laminate at my floor like four years ago in our house, um, I had a box cutters, and apparently you're supposed to cut away from yourself. Anybody ever heard, anybody ever heard that? And so I'm holding laminate because I can't get it to fit between this little piece of laminate and the, and the wall, and I'm sitting there trying to just shave it off and make it, and I, I'm getting mad when I throw the boss cutters. I'm like, what in the world? And Megan's like, you better calm down or you're going to end up getting hurt. And I was like, whatever. And so I pick up the boss cutters. Again, eventually slips and just dice my finger immediately. I mean, blood starts shooting out. So I grab a towel and I go, take me to the emergency room. She's like, what happens? Like, just take me to the emergency room, okay? <laughs> and so... Um, and so I go and I get eight stitches in my finger and it was pretty sensitive for a while. But now we're laughing about it because it's healed. It doesn't hurt anymore. Listen, wounds are often like that. Please hear this and we're done in like three or four minutes. Some of you have been cut so deeply, you have begun to believe a lie, you'll never heal from that. You have no idea how I've been hurt, Pastor. I'll never, no, not me. This is, I'm a unique situation. That is a lie from the enemy. You have an opportunity this morning to release and to love the person who sinned against you, to forgive them. And listen, when you will do this, your flesh will fill in over, the cut will begin to heal, and in the end, the only thing that will be left is a scar of grace. What amazes me about Jesus is when Jesus raises from the dead, what does he have on his hands? He's not walking like bleeding out still, right? Like he's got scars in his hand. And what do his scars tell? He says this. The scars say this. The world crucified me, but I got up out of the grave. And I ain't mad at you. I love you and I have forgiven you. And listen, because Jesus has in his hands not wounds but scars, they are scars that tell stories now of forgiveness and redemption. And listen, when you see that those scars are for you, if you believe that what Jesus did on the cross was not just for those people in that crowd, but for you today, because of what the perpetrator did in their sin, you may have been wounded, but because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you can be healed, no matter who you are or what has happened to you. You can be made whole. You can be made complete. You can forgive as you have been forgiven, and as a result, your wounds can become scars, scars of mercy and scars of grace that testify to the complete forgiveness and freedom and healing that is yours. So, as we end, as we do each week, we get an opportunity to take communion. we got two stations in the front, two in the back, and here's what communion is for. It's to remind you of the scars. It's to remind you of the scars. It's to remind you that the sinless Son of God went to the cross to take the wrath reserved for you, to pay the penalty for your sin debt so that you can go from being an enemy of God to being his beloved child. Today, God is our perfect Father, right? That's what we really celebrate today. And he's our father because of the forgiveness that has been extended to us. If you're here and you have received that forgiveness, I would encourage you to come and partake. We have, uh, again, two sessions in the back. That's a gluten-free option in the back for you. Um, but you can tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. Um, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, if you have not, 
Let me just say this. The first step to becoming a Christian is to realize that truly you do deserve hell. And then just how sweet forgiveness is. And that it's not something you can earn or deserve, but it's been poured out fully through Christ. If you've not received that, uh, I would encourage you to do that today. Don't come take this bread and juice. It's empty. We get it from Walmart. Last I checked, I think it's great value. Uh, by taking of it, God's not going to forgive you of your sins. He's not going to love you more. For us, this is a symbol of hope. For you, rather than taking this, receive Jesus Christ. Receive his life, death, and resurrection. Taste forgiveness and the freedom that's found in him. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as the band comes forward. I'll pray for us. And if you do have questions, if you want to process what it would look like to enter into a relationship with Jesus or just need prayer, I'll be up here in the front. Adam is here as well. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for everyone who is here today. I thank you for the undeserved, scandalous grace that you have poured out on us through Jesus Christ. I pray that if there is anybody here right now who has wounds that are festering and are infected and are um, keeping them from experiencing the life they are longing for in you, I pray that Holy Spirit right now that you would just begin to graciously reveal to them the things that they're ready for and that you would uh, show them just the love that you have poured out and the mercy and that they would extend that to others. I pray that if there is any of bitterness within our own missional communities or our own church, especially, God, that, that people would be quick to seek forgiveness. And Father, I pray for the person who maybe is here, who is bored out of their minds when it comes to life, uh, who are clearly not satisfied, who are empty. I pray that, Jesus, you would fill them today through your Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.